Seated. And as you're seated, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we'll be reading chapter 5, verse 18 through 21. Second Corinthians 5:18-21. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. O Lord, open up these glorious words of truth and salvation to us this morning, that we may believe them and be ambassadors for them. And we thank you for the grace displayed in this scripture. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was sitting in the waiting area of the Kinney Drugstore here on Corinth Road a couple weeks ago when I was getting my first Moderna vaccination. And I was cooling my heels to see if I would get an immediate reaction. And while reading a book there, I saw in the background a set of work shoes with a splotch of white paint on one foot. And I wondered to myself, where had I seen those shoes before? They were so distinctive, the, the, the paint. And it came to me that I had gone to Stewart's earlier that morning. I was putting air into my tires, and there was a man wearing those shoes, having his morning coffee. And as we were there, cast together again, I said to myself, well, for what reason did you come to two places to see this man? And Emily Clements, who's the consummate customer service, she's going to be the manager of that place in a couple of years. She is great. She had held my hand, not literally, but I was so nervous. Okay, nervous Ned. And she's just walking me through it. Okay, this is what you're going to do, Pastor Ned. You're going to be okay. And so we were talking about, you know, God. She said, I'm coming back and I'm praying for her that she'll be back to church. And I'm praying that she's going to just, just be regular with us again. And, and he heard that. And she, he said, you know, I'm a believer, too. I, I love Jesus. You know, and he changed my life 10 years ago. 10 years ago, I was lost. I was on drugs. I had multiple felony counts against me. And I came to the point on a Friday afternoon that I knew I needed to do something. I started calling up churches, calling up churches, and one of them picked up in Corinth, and he went over there, and the counselor spoke to him and led him to Jesus that very day. 
and his life was changed. Now, this man needed some, 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 something and went out to the car. He brought his wife in. He introduced me. She talked to me. She, boy, this man, he totally changed 10 years ago. And so I'm here to say to you that God and the truths that are revealed in this scripture are real. They change lives. And you don't have to be somebody on drugs facing a felony count. You could just be an everyday pharisaical good doer who's going to hell that way. But God changes lives. And he reconciles us to himself. First today, we speak about being reconciled personally and cosmically all by God, verses 18 through 19a. Second, we talk about being ambassadors, not knights, 19b through 20. And third, Christ made to be sin, not a sinner, and us reckoned righteous in him, verse 21. So first today, we are reconciled personally and cosmically, all by God, in verses 18 through 19a. And we may ask ourselves, if the problem is sin, why do we need to be reconciled to God? What, don't we just need to escape that sin? Don't we just need to overcome the devil? That temptation, that feeling of guilt, that entrapment in a life where there can be felony possibilities, or in a more domesticated life, maybe we need escape from a Willie Loman kind of life and death of a salesman, living a life of despair and emptiness. He's self-centered. He committed an affair 15 years before. He fails to appreciate his wife. He can't acknowledge the fact that he's only marginally successful as a salesman. And so Willie fantasizes about lost opportunities for wealth, fame, and notoriety leaving behind only a poorly attended funeral after his suicide. This is the trap of a self-centered life, self-centered sin. And in real life, Bernie Madoff is just the most dramatic example of somebody who lived for himself. A dramatic example of a trapped, selfish, destructive man. But isn't getting rid of that the problem rather than being reconciled to God? If I could only deal with my faults, my fears, my guilt and sadness and leave God out of it and just be left alone to myself, I'd be all right. But that's the issue. We were never created to be left alone to ourselves. That's the essence of sin. It's this self-centeredness. It's just leave me alone attitude. We were created for communion with God. We were meant to be placed within his family, the church, where fellowship and love of others is the pattern, not to withdraw to please ourselves. We need to be reconciled to God because our sin constitutes rebellion against God, which must be turned around to worship and service of God rather than service of sin and self. Our rebellion has caused guilt for which we need atonement if we are to be able to worship and know and love and serve God, glorifying him rather than sin and self and death being the center of our universe. 
In verse 18, we read, now all things are of God. Now that all things are the reality in the previous verse, in 5 verse 17, that we are a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. All this is of God. He does this. It's done by God to rescue us from our sin and rebellion. It's done by God because we have rebelled in the Garden of Eden with Adam, our father. And that sin has been passed down to us originally, and it's reinforced daily, and we are helpless. We cannot change this. But God changes things, and he brings us out of a old sphere of the first Adam into the sphere of the last Adam, the new creation. All this is of God as he conveys us from the power of darkness and into the kingdom of the son of his love. This is a transfer that happens as he gives us the gift of faith and he reconciles us to himself. And what we observe here now is that we need to be reconciled to God, not vice versa. And that this reconciling is done by God when he does not impute our trespasses against us. He doesn't hold them against us. Now, some people live with a chip on their shoulder, frankly, thinking that they have such an issue with God who has supposedly mistreated them, that God has let them down. And God's been so bad to me that God ought to come to me, cap in hand, and be reconciled to me. And what he ought to say is, oh, won't you let me into your life? And he ought to say he's sorry for all the bad things that you've been through. And if you only believed in me, I'm sure it'd get better over time. That's God being reconciled to us. But that's not what is needed. In fact, it's our sin that has caused the misery in our life. It's the sin of other people that causes us misery, or it's the misery of the sinful condition of humanity because of sickness and death. That's responsible for the misery and pain in our life. And it's us who need to be reconciled to God. And we need to have our trespasses not held to our account, not imputed to us. You see, we stand in great jeopardy of the wrath of a holy God because of our disobedience to his law and our unfaithfulness to his person. You know, that law we just read, we stand guilty under that, if not for the cross of Christ. We have broken his law. We've been unfaithful to our creator. As Paul writes in Romans 2.5, when we are hard against God and have an impenitent heart, refusing to admit that we have broken his holy law, we are treasuring up for ourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. It's like there is this lake out there and we're just adding water to it every day. And on the day of judgment, that dam is gonna break and it's gonna pour over us and it's not gonna be water, it's gonna be wrath. We're treasuring it up. 
when we don't repent and come to God. Willie Loman had no clue how much worse it was going to get when he killed himself and when he left this life as an unbeliever. And as difficult as our life might be now without Christ, we must not kid ourselves that it will be better after we die unless we have first experienced this glorious truth by faith in Christ that God does not impute our trespasses to us. It's like the man who goes into debt, has an overdrawn condition in all his bank accounts, in all his lines of credit, and then he discovers when he calls up his bank, someone who loves him has canceled his debt, and not only that, restored his right to write checks on that account, bringing his resources in a positive way alongside of canceling the debt. Christ's blood forgives your sin, and God sees Christ's righteousness. When he looks at you, he looks at you through Christ. And all the resources of his holiness and righteousness are at your disposal by faith. Meaning that when we come to him, we escape the sin which has trapped us and imprisoned us. And we are delivered from sin because we are reconciled to our creator. And this has cosmic implications. It says, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. As Hughes writes, reconciliation is applied in the first place to humankind. But since man, as the crown of God's creation, in his fall brought a curse upon the subordinate realm also, you know, all those thorns and weeds, everything that he talks about in Genesis 3, that God talks about, he brought a curse on that realm. And so in man's restoration, the whole created order will be restored, unquote. What the first Adam dragged down, the second Adam raises up. And we are reconciled to himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. In Colossians 1, verse 19, it talks about this also. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. There's an interesting omission there. Paul in Colossians 1 does not say all things under the earth. You are not reconciled if you go to hell. You are permanently non-reconciled and under punishment. In Philippians chapter 1, it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Yes, the saved and the damned will show submission, bowing the knee to the exalted Christ. But it is only those in heaven and on earth, in the new heaven and the new earth at the last day, who shall be reconciled to him. This cosmic reconciliation is no easygoing universalism. It is a specific work of God to bring individuals and people together and the created order into reconciliation in the church and outside the church in the created realm. 
The second point today is we are ambassadors. We're not knights, which means that as a body of believers, we focus on the declaration of what God has done. Rather than trying to make ourselves as heroes who will turn, who will turn the world upside down ourselves. It says in verse 19 that God has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ, verse 20. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Just think of God talking through Paul. Just think of God speaking through you. When you bring the word of God to someone, he's speaking through you. He is delivering his message of reconciliation. We don't try to add to that. The victory has been won by Christ at the cross and the empty tomb and the ascension. And we don't pretend to be culture warriors who, who then are going to go out and fight a great battle and do more winning for Jesus. What has God committed to us? We are ambassadors. God has committed to us the word of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ, not knights going out to do battle. For even when the weapons of warfare are talked about in the Bible, they are not fighting with the weapons of this world. Even as the women have been studying out of Ephesians 6 recently on Wednesday, we contend not with the unbelieving people around us. They are mere pawns under the evil one's influence and sway. We contend with principalities and powers against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And we use spiritual weapons of faith, the word of God, the gospel of peace. Our knight is King Jesus. He came not in shining armor. He came in a rough-hewn, humble manger saw and never wore a king's clothes unless it was thrust upon him as a form of mockery. He died an anguished death, forlorn on the cross, and then raised victorious from the dead. We are his ambassadors, pledged to bring his message, not ours, to a lost and broken world, so loved by God. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. It's a word of knowledge. It's a word of truth. It is a word of reconciliation. And how do we do that? If we are pleading with people, be reconciled to God, as it says here at the end of 20, how do we do it? We do it three ways, three L's. It's the life we live, it's the love we display, and it's the lips we open to glorify Christ. The life we live is a holy life. As it says, as we will study a chapter later, 7-1, therefore having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We go out. We are not conformed to this world. We are transformed by the renewing of our minds. We are a witness of reconciliation by being one who lives a holy life. As a body we're known for that in the church 
They live differently there at that church. Secondly, it's the love we display. It's the deeds of kindness and quietness and mercy, unobtrusive. It's the deeds of mercy we do corporately as a church family when we do things together. Verse 14, for the love of Christ compels us. Remember that from a few weeks ago. The love of Christ compels us. And verse 15, to live for Christ. Verse 16, to regard no one according to the flesh. We're not going to look at people like they're just people who annoy us, who we disagree with on some issue. We look at them as those who need to know Christ. It's life and love and lips. We can't possibly be an ambassador for Christ if we never open our lips. That's what ambassadors do. They go representing their government. They go representing their president or the king. They bring his message, but they better bring it. That's their major job in that country. Our major job is to be a witness. We can't be silent eternally. And you know what happens if you're always silent? People begin to think, well, you're just a good middle-class middle person, just like Elder Ken was saying, you know, there, there's a nice professional. You know, he, he mows his lawn, he, he gives money to the charities, and he's really polite. You know, we begin to leave the impression that this is all about us. That I'm like this because I'm just naturally a good guy or a decent woman. But we need to open our lips. We need to share it. It's because Christ has changed us. We're not secret service Christians wearing black sunglasses fitting into the crowd of people that we would never want to be known that we're there representing King Jesus. No. As we live our life of holiness, as we display love, we open our lips to say, this is about Jesus. He can reconcile you to God also. Finally, Christ made to be sin, not a sinner, and us reckoned righteous in him, verse 21. So here is how it happens. And it's important to know how it happens in verse 21. Because if we use that phrase in verse 20, be reconciled to God, that's really not good news. Unless it's accompanied by the declaration of how we are reconciled. What's the foundation of that reconciliation? And first to note... It's that Christ did not become a sinner, taking upon himself the inherent corruption of being a rebel against God, staining Jesus in his spotless perfection. Rather, we read here in verse 21, him who knew no sin, as that's supported also in Hebrews 4.15, he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And 1 Peter 2, 22, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. This was just a verdict that was pronounced upon Jesus, who was sort of bummed out that he died at the cross. And, you know, some people figured he was raised from the dead. You know, this wasn't just some scheme that the apostles cooked up. There was a death. There was a resurrection, and they saw him, and they saw him ascended into heaven. 
And when he wrote these things, Paul in verse 21 and Peter in 22 of chapter 2 of his first letter, this was the inspired word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit and based upon their observation of Jesus's ministry. This wasn't just said after the fact. It was Christ's own self-awareness in John 8, 45. It says, which of you convicts me of sin? And then in John 10, 30, he says, I and my father are one. How could he be one with his father unless he was sinless? So Christ did not become a sinner. Rather, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. God made his son to be sin for us in the only way it possibly could be. Since the son of God was sinless, God made him to be sin for us in terms of sin's consequences, guilt, and corresponding misery and punishment at the cross of Calvary. He bore the consequences for humanity's sin. He bore the guilt of humanity's sin. Suffering at the cross when he hung there. Even in the darkness where God poured his wrath upon him. And Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To suggest that Jesus Christ actually became sinful is to misread the text. Rather, the guilt of sin was reckoned to Christ, and he willingly suffered under that. Note that the righteousness reckoned that's described in the very last two verses of verse 21 become the righteousness of God in him. It's as we are united with him by faith that we are reckoned righteous, completely, decisively, powerfully. For my friend from Kinney Drug on that Friday afternoon when he laid his burden down, for you it could be today if you have never confessed faith in Jesus Christ. For you, it may have been decades ago. But then that reconciliation also happens practically as over a course of a lifetime, we are sanctified. We are justified in a moment. We are sanctified in a lifetime. And experientially and relationally toward others, we become more and more holy by faith in Christ every day. Now, some have suggested that in the light of the cross that God made him to be sin for us, that that should be translated sin offering, like in the Old Testament in Leviticus 4.24 and Numbers 8.8. 8. But it's probably best to translate it simply sin, since the noun sin appears twice in the verse, and the first time it appears, him who knew no sin, it simply means sin, not a sin offering. So we should translate it the same later in the verse, when he became sin for us. So it doesn't have that specific idea of a sin offering, but it has the idea of him taking our guilt and that we, having had our guilt brought upon him, we exchange our guilt for his righteousness. His righteousness comes to us. His, our guilt goes to him. Philip Edgecombe Hughes has declared that in these few words of verse 21, 
The apostle sets forth the gospel of reconciliation in all its mystery and all its wonder. There is no sentence more profound in the whole of Scripture. For this verse embraces the whole ground of the sinner's reconciliation to God and declares the reason why the sinner should respond to the entreaty, be reconciled to God. This is the great exchange, or it's been called the doctrine of double imputation. The guilt of our sin imputed to Christ and the righteousness of Christ's obedient and faithful life imputed to us. And it's central to the pattern of sound words which we are exploring and enjoying together as we walk through 2 Corinthians. And as we look at how it happens in the context of the wider teaching, it's helpful to see that the exchange happens in the death and resurrection of Christ as laid out in 14 and 15. The ones for whom Christ died and rose again, that group of people, are the ones who are reconciled to God. And therefore, when we're reconciled, we want to live for him. We don't want to live for somebody that we're at odds with. But when God brings us close, when he says, you are my adopted son, my adopted daughter, when we're brought close and reconciled, then we want to live for him. James Denny writes of 521. It's not a, the puzzle of the New Testament, this verse. It's the ultimate solution of all puzzles. It's not a blank obscurity in Revelation. It's the focus in which the reconciling love of God burns. It's the fountain of light all the day. As Bengal says, he alone who did not know sin had no need of reconciliation. Christ didn't need to be reconciled to anybody. Whereas we, who did not know righteousness, were bound to be destroyed unless reconciliation were found. It's found. It's found in Jesus at the cross. My brother in Christ at the Stewart's and Kinney Drug Store with the paint-stained shoes found this reconciliation. Will you? He meets you right in the middle of your life, right in the Stewart's and the Kinney Drugs and the homes that you live in and the factories you work in, he meets you here today. And whether you're more prone to felony or more prone to pharisaical self-righteousness, Christ is here with hope. Trust in him. And share this message. Bring it to others. Bring it by life, by love, by lip. You are an ambassador. God is speaking through you. And he's committed it to you. He's committed this. When you're committed with a message, the person who commits it intends it to be delivered. Go and bring this message of reconciliation to your world. He wants people to be saved. Let us pray. Lord, bless this congregation. Lord, in their individual quiet lives of humility, use them as, them as ambassadors by life, by love, by lip. And here gathered today, call a poor wandering sinner to yourself. Bring them to yourself. 
that no longer will they live for self, but live for you. No longer will they labor under guilt, but know your forgiveness. We pray it in Jesus' name.